Hi, this is Saka Rahman from the Orthoclips podcast series. And today I'm with Dr. John DeFiori. He's a chief of primary sports medicine service and attending physician at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City, where he oversees one of the largest academic and clinical programs for primary sports medicine in the US. Uh, he is also the director of sports medicine for the NBA, uh, where he's involved with quite a few things, including research initiatives, uh, develop, uh, development and uh, implementation of policies for player health and safety. Um, he is also the former president of the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine and uh, has written multiple publications. And today we're actually going to focus a little bit on the NBA bubble and return to sports in the COVID-19 pandemic. So thanks, uh, Dr. DeFiore, for coming on the call. Well, it's a, a pleasure to be here and I'm happy to uh, share with you what we've uh, learned so far and our challenges that clearly lie ahead of us. Yeah, we're definitely going to get into that. So maybe you can start off briefly, tell us about your involvement with the NBA and um, I guess specifically with the bubble this past season, I guess just, I'm just just getting a little background of you and how you got involved um, in this and, uh, and, and, you know, with sure. the bubble in specific. Yeah. Well, um, I'm finishing up my sixth year as the director of sports medicine. Um, prior to my arrival, there really didn't have sort of a medical director. Um, so uh, they were anxious to, to do that. And um, I became part of the league uh, in 2015. Um, and it's, it's been an interesting process. Um, I've been very excited to be part of the league. They um, do pretty much everything with a very high level of integrity um, and uh, really look to try to do the absolute best in terms of player health and safety. And um, that was, a, a, to me, a very important part of, of, of deciding to, to work with, with a professional uh, league organization. Um, so sort of, as you, you mentioned, you know, my task is partly to advise the league on all, all aspects of player health. And that includes areas like, you know, injury data analysis, injury prevention, you mentioned research. We have a number of research initiatives in the league. Um, we have developed a league wide mental health program. Uh, one of my roles is directing the yearly NBA combine and doing medical screening on all the players that are going to be eligible for the draft. Um, but an, another one of my roles, I would say, is, is to be sure I'm keeping abreast of any emerging medical issues that it could impact the NBA. And, you know, with respect to infectious diseases, you know, there's several examples I can give you just during the time that I've been with the league, going back to the Ebola virus, uh, where we had you know, teams and, and groups of players um, planning travel to uh, Africa to do work on behalf of the league and community relationships there. Uh, we, of course, had the Zika virus outbreak in 20, late 2015 going into 2016, uh, which certainly was a topic of conversation among NBA players uh, from the U.S. and internationally who were going to be competing for their national teams in Rio. And then intermittently, we've had issues with measles outbreaks here in the U.S. Um, that have um, been issues we have been, you know, really uh, 
trying to keep abreast of, keep keep on top of, and, and inform our teams how to manage those. Um, with respect to you know COVID nineteen, um, you know we first became aware of this uh, when it was first reported in late December on uh, the New York Times, and then we had an office. We have an office in China, and uh, they were of course. Um, relaying information uh, directly to the legal office. And, you know, throughout that period of time, uh, we began to sort of gather information. And I think one of the things that we did, and certainly in, in January, was begin to have discussions with our teams, particularly in the West Coast. Um, I think at that time, we felt that if any teams were going to be affected early, uh, it potentially would be teams in the West Coast because of the frequent travel between West Coast states and, and Asia. Right. Um, and, and so we began to develop programs with them on early identification and early management plans. And then, you know, as, as we all know, the first cases of community spread actually did occur in Sacramento. And uh, we were very uh, involved and concerned about, you know, uh, some games that were going on at that time and, and trying to you know, prevent uh, exposure and, and development of, of uh, spread among those teams. Um, but at that time, you know, things seemed to be pretty um, minimal in terms of the numbers of cases, of course. Um, and we went through the all-star break. And then as everyone knows, uh, we had the um, first case uh, develop uh, among a, in a player on Utah Jazz, Rudy Gobert. And, um, that uh, led to the shutdown of the league. Um, I can certainly remember that whole day and evening very vividly, and, and um, was, you know, one of the most, uh, I would say, impactful days of my my career as a physician for sure. Um, and I would say though that pretty quickly after that, we well, we knew at that point that we had to take a pause um, from from league play. We could not continue. Uh, for sure. Uh, but pretty quickly after that, we began to look at whether or not we would actually be able to resume the season at some point. Um, and, you know, in the weeks that followed, it wasn't very clear, um, but we began to investigate this idea of a bubble. Um, so I, did the, sorry, yeah. to so the, the yeah. thought about the bubble happened after would you say like serious discussion about doing that happened after the pause, uh, would you say? Or was this something that was kind of um, anticipated and then like at what point was, at what point yeah. was there serious consideration for the bubble? I, I think it was certainly after uh, March 11th. I, I think at that point in time, we, we weren't sure how this was going to play out, whether mm -hmm. right. it was going to be, something we could take a pause, gather more information, understand how to manage it and potentially be able to resume play in, you know, maybe a month or so. I think the commissioner's on record as saying like, we're gonna take a pause and reevaluate this. And, and you know, I think what we began to realize very quickly is, is that it was going to be basically impossible for us to resume without a very rigorous testing program um, and understanding all the things that we need to understand about infection control. Um, you know, I was pretty actively communicating with colleagues in Europe and European soccer in Italy and Germany and Spain, uh, colleagues in Australia um, with the Australian uh, Football League there and 
rugby colleagues in, in England in rugby um, and, you know, gathering as much information as we possibly could. Um, and I think very quickly we realized that testing um, among other key priorities, which I'll mention in a minute, but testing was going to be really the key to being able to consider in any, in any sort of circumstance, in any, in any way. And, um, you know, that, that's something we spent an extraordinary amount of time on investigating, talking to various companies and scientists. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things that we actually did as we established a relationship with a university-based virology lab so that we could do independent testing to really feel comfortable with making decisions. Um, but I would say that as we got further into it, you know, there was a lot of pressure to maybe say, hey, this isn't gonna work continuing. You know, I think there was some of, you know, the talk in the media, you know, especially in April, I would say. Yeah, but I think our commissioner was very, very clear that he wanted to do everything, you know, he possibly could to, to salvage the season, to be able to resume the season a champion. And I think that was really something that Adam, uh, Adam Silver, our commissioner, was very, very diligent about. And the, each day almost, and certainly each week that went by, we were able to gather more and more information. And we ultimately, ultimately came to the conclusion that if we were going to restart three key things had to be in place. One is that we would feel confident that we can maintain player health and safety. That was first and foremost, you know, the, the, the key issue, the uh, overriding issue. Secondly, we had to be sure that we could abide by any public health measures that were in place. And then thirdly, and probably just as importantly, whatever we were going to do, we did not want to, would not divert resources from hospitals and other essential services, which of course in you know April and May were critically limited. And um, yeah, tell me about it. Something that was a, was really really um, a, you know obviously a concern for everyone across the country, but certainly in areas where they were hit with early um, cases like New York City, where, where I am. Um, so I, I think you know that kind of gives you sort of that overview of how we kind of got down that path. Yeah, and the and you know the. I guess the overall layperson's impression was that the NBA bubble, you know, was pretty successful, I guess, by, by many measures. And um, I guess maybe just sticking to the medical aspects of it. I mean, what would you say were the top lessons that you learned and, and are there any like myths or misinformation out there about how this happened? Yeah. Wanted to kind of, yeah. Well, I, I can tell you, we, we really were learning a lot. I, I mean, I think the things that we found um, was that, well, several things. One is collaboration. I, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, we were talking with people. I personally was talking with people all over the world and we assembled you know, a team of experts in infection control and infectious disease and virology to really help advise us along the way. And that was really important to have that expert team um, to help guide us. Um, you know, we're, we're dealing with, you know, um, a group of, of, of players and, and staff, referees, and it really is our responsibility to make sure that if we're going to recommend we, we resume play, that we're really able to minimize the risk such that it was not 
certainly any greater than it would be if they were in their home or their community um, and, and preferably much less. And we had to have an ongoing communication with all the stakeholders, especially our players and our players association, complete transparency. And, and you know, I, I think that process was probably one of the most, um, I would say, um, inspiring and, and unique uh, processes, projects I've ever been involved with, but there was just tremendous collaboration with the, the leadership of the Players Association, including you know the, the, the executive leadership, uh, you know which involves players, as well as the, the executive directors of the Players Association, with multiple multiple meetings, hours and hours and hours of communicating on the latest information and you know what would be the best way to approach things, how we should tweak things. Um, so I think that was one of the key lessons is, you know, collaboration, transparency, communication, really, really important. And I, I think the other thing that we learned very early on is to be, we were extremely conservative in our approach because we knew that we didn't know a lot. There was, this virus had only been around a few months and we took the approach that we weren't going to make any assumptions, even based on limited information, limited data, we wanted to be sure that we were taking an approach that gave us a high chance of success, even if it meant, you know, taking multiple, multiple layers and extra, extra, you know, initiatives to preserve a chance. Um, you know, and I think what we learned is that we started out with phases. And our first phase in terms of starting the return was to have players only participate without any other players. So it was like one-on-none. Player would be in a building, they would be with one coach, one basket, and they would get a training session and they would leave the facility. The facility would be turned over in terms of cleaning and the next player would be able to come in. And that was critical because our goal there was to try to prevent one infection from turning into six or eight or 10. And that's always been our approach. But early on with players coming in from communities where like for example, at that time, Phoenix and Dallas and Houston, where there was a really high prevalence of, of cases, um, you know, we didn't have a, an opportunity to test them before that. So we began to test, um, and at the time we began to test, we really limited the the exposure to other players and other staff, and that really helped us because by the time we got to Orlando, players had not been exposed to each other, but they had been testing regularly. And players who were identified were removed from the team environment and managed medically. Um, and then when they got to Orlando, they were quarantined for a period of time and continued to be tested. So when, by the time they actually started playing with each other in a team fashion, um, we had pretty much you know, done what we, we wanted to do, which was try to identify cases before they could spread to other players. And so I, I always termed the quarantine as sort of the moat around the castle. And it really wasn't necessarily a quarantine per se. Quarantine was part of it, but it was that phased, phased in approach. I think we learned that, that without having, you know, measures to test and, and identify that quarantine period where we were testing was really, really important. Okay. Interesting. So before we wrap up, I got two questions. Um, kind of looking forward now, clearly this is a professional operation and, um, you know, I, I think 
to some extent, clearly a lot of hard work, a lot of teamwork and um, doesn't, you know, just because it's professional doesn't equal success. I mean, clearly this was uncharted territory. So I congratulate um, you and your uh, team at the NBA for what was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a successful operation. How do you think this might translate to return to college basketball? We'll use it as an example, just because next week, as far as I know, is the um, is the start of the NCAA college season. Um, obviously, we know there are a lot of differences, but um, what would you say? Um, what would you suggest as a um, you know a major learning point that could translate? Um, you know, they can't obviously have a bubble like you had, but what could they do to to try and make a successful go at it? Well, you know, I don't know all the details about their plans. So I have to say that, you know, I'm not commenting from a standpoint of having details. Sure. But I mean, I, I think I would, I think it's fair to say that you have a couple of huge challenges here. Uh, one is that the stage of the pandemic is at its current peak and who knows how much higher the, the case numbers will get in the next 30 to 60 days. Pretty clear it's going to get higher in the next 30 days. Um, so that's one real significant issue is that the prevalence is so high that it's on it's it, I would say it's on it's it's for sure that there will be cases. Right. Uh, and it, the cases will happen. And then without daily PCR testing, not antigen testing, PCR testing, I think it's going to be extremely difficult um, to, you know, have a successful return to college basketball. I'm not saying it can't be done, but I think without daily PCR testing, and, Which I think I've heard is part of the discussion. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, I, and I don't know the details, but I, you know, I've heard different things, like you know, several times a week, or doing antigen testing. I don't know. Right. One of the keys to this will be doing daily PCR testing, and then doing you know contact tracing. And I think the contact tracing is going to be also part part of that challenge. The other thing is that you've got, you know, in hundred teams or so that are in different communities with different public health regulations. And you're starting, you're talking about dealing with public health authorities at the height of the most significant medical crisis in, you know, hundred years. Um, and to try to coordinate um, the different um, sort of regulations in different areas of the country it's going to be very, very challenging, very difficult. Um, you know, we already know that from some of our my colleagues around the country in different sports, and you know that that you have to understand that there's going to be different levels or different measures in place depending on the situation in that community. Um, and so, obviously, being in a bubble it, that that made that whole issue a lot easier for us. But now as we move forward to the next season, we're going to have the same situation. We're going to have the same challenges. Um, and, you know, uh, we certainly will have an extraordinary amount of resources to try to take that on. But I think at the NCAA level, 
you know, I, I think your best case is going to be infections and contact tracing that result in game cancellations or postponements. I think that's almost inevitable. Um, and unfortunately, I think the worst case would be that we start seeing people develop serious illnesses, perhaps even in younger folks and, you know, with long recoveries and, you know, hopefully not. But I mean, you know, we all know of cases of healthy people who have not survived. So, you know, this is a situation where it still remains uncharted territory and um, it's, it's not going to be easy. I, I can say that. Yeah. I mean, my hope is that they can somehow coordinate um, in such a way to, um, you know, move quickly, act decisively and, um, you know, make the right decisions across, you know, different, you know, the landscape yeah. of the country. It's going, be, it's going to be hard. Yeah. And I think that the mistake people make and, and is that you can't compare it to Major League Baseball or Major League Soccer or even football. I mean, the sport of basketball involves closer contact for longer periods of time. Um, it's very different than the other sports, even football. If you do the contact tracing on football, which the NFL has done an amazing job with that, the actual cumulative exposure on the field is much, much less than people realize. And that's probably why so far we haven't seen transmission in the field of play in football. We certainly didn't see it in, you know, baseball right. or ice hockey. And now basketball is different. The other thing about basketball is, you know, most NCAA teams play twice a week, not once a week. Now you you know, so again, there's more frequent travel. Usually teams take a road trip where they're playing, you know, in a geographic area, two different games in a geographic area. So like, you know, I was involved with the Pac-12. So you'd fly up to Seattle and you play in Seattle and then you'd bus out to, to uh, Pullman, Washington, or you'd fly up to San Francisco and, and play Cal and Stanford. So there's, there's a lot more exposure, a lot more travel involved than even with an NCAA football team. Yeah, well, we'll you we will see. Thirty seconds. Uh, last question. I want to ask you real quick. What do you think? Think five years from now. How do you think uh, professional sports are going to be changed because of what we just went through or going through? Yeah, this is a really good question. I, I don't think you know it's hard to know, but I will. I think I can say with some confidence that that throughout the scientific community, but certainly in sports medicine, you know the collaboration with colleagues across the world, you know, has, has really, I think, opened up dialogue that I think will continue. And I think there'll be an ongoing sharing of information, you know, way beyond, you know, coronavirus. And I think that those, that sharing and the exchange of ideas will really span all aspects of sports medicine. I, I think that's going to be something that perhaps, you know, there was sort of that, invisible barrier of communicating like that, time zones and things. Um, but I think that's something that will really benefit, um, you know, the health and safety athletes, because I just think we're going to be able to learn um, more from our colleagues um, that having gone through this. Um, coronavirus itself, it's hard to know. I mean, you look at most viral situations, like I mentioned Zika and Ebola, and you know, usually after a period of time, they come under control and then there's largely a return to business as usual. Um, we don't know yet, but I think that's probably everyone's hope. So, uh, but I think that collaboration, that exchange of information, that learning from your your colleagues in different settings and different sports, um, I think that's something that's really, for all of us who've been doing it, it's really been um, uh, sort of uh, 
a silver lining in, in all of this. And I think it will. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a great answer. I love it. I mean, it's a real, uh, and I, I would have to agree. I mean, you know, we don't have crystal ball, but you would think that that would be one of the positive outcomes here. Well, listen, this is, um, this has been really enlightening. I think, um, our listeners are definitely going to enjoy this and we'll, uh, we'll see what plays out with college basketball. Uh, but I want to thank you again. I've been uh, talking with Dr. John DeFiori. Um, thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on the call and, um, good luck. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure.